If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 7, and we're going to, to read the very last verse of 7 through verse 11 of chapter 8. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came with him, and sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman is taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But why sayest thou? They said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, and though, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard him, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus has lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are thou thine thy accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I almost chose my title from verse 10. Or, or verse 9, where the woman was standing alone in the midst. Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing in the midst. I thought, that, that's me. There's a lot of times where you're accused. Um, there's so many things that can accuse me. My past can accuse me. My conscience can accuse me. Justice can accuse me. The devil can accuse me. And I can stand. And I realize, really, that I'm only standing in front of Jesus. Jesus only is the one that was offended by my sin. Jesus is clean, and my sin offended him. And I'm standing there in front of him, and Jesus lifts up his eyes to me and says, Neither do I accuse you. Go and don't sin anymore. That is a remarkable, remarkable passage. It's probably one of the most beautiful passages to Christians throughout the centuries. And this is one of the two long passages in the Bible that are not found anywhere in the oldest Greek manuscript. So the, the fragments of the Bible that we have, which are thousands and thousands, um, the Bible is so much uh, more, how do I say this? There are so many ancient passages from the Bible that are actually pieces of the Bible, more than any other book in the whole world. Um, but that's not, that's not saying enough. If you were to compare every other old book in the world to the Bible, the Bible has tens of thousands of times more uh, proof of what the words of the Bible were because there are so many copies of the Bible. And some of the copies are ancient, ancient old. Now, the, the actual autograph, the, the book that John wrote on paper, um, no one believes that we have that actual piece of paper that John wrote. But every time that a book was sent to a church, the first thing that would be done is they would copy that book. They would co 
copy that book and they would copy it and then it would be sent to the to the neighboring churches every time that it went to a town they would copy it again and there are tens of thousands of very 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 ancient copies of the bible way more than any of the other historical books so the books they forced you to read in high school and they forced you to read in college there may be one or two copies seven or eight hundred years after the fact and that would be the only ancient book that they've got but there are tens of thousands of these uh, bible passages bible fragments whole books whole bibles that are very very old there are none of the very old passages in the entire world that has this passage um, but it's very very unique there are two large passages in the bible like that the last uh, part of chapter 16 of mark <coughs> there are none of the old the old bibles that contain it they the first time this was was found in a bible fragment was in the fifth century but this is a very unusual passage because you've got church fathers from the first century that have commentary on this. So this is something that was considered to be from the words of Jesus. Because you've got people from the very first century, from, from just past the resurrection, writing a commentary on this. So when this was found in the first time that this was found in the 5th century in a Bible, um, it was found everywhere. This has been found in three or four different parts of John, and it's been found after chapter 24 of Luke, that they simply put it, they realized that this was, uh, this was apostolic, that the apostles taught this, that, that, that this is something that was considered to be the words of Jesus, but it's very possible that if you have a modern translation, you'll see that this whole passage is in parentheses. It's, it's uh, either a footnote of your Bible, and there's, these verses are actually missing, or that it is uh, where there's a note, where that in the ancient uh, manuscripts, this wasn't found. Um, there really is no dis disagreement among, among um, scholars that this is actually an account from the Gospels. So I'm going to preach it as though it, it is God's word. It's interesting when you want to say that because that, that makes people afraid that, they, that the Bibles are wrong. Absolutely wrong. You are, you are, my faith is in what God has done. And God has preserved this. And this is, this in no way changes any doctrines. There's no doctrines changed at all from this passage. They're everywhere the same. In fact, you would think that this passage is about the woman taking an adultery. That's why I decided not to not to have the woman standing in the midst because that would suggest that the whole the whole sermon is about the lady standing there waiting for Jesus to give some kind of a statement to her. Um, this passage really speaks volumes about Jesus. What is Jesus like? Who is Jesus that this is what he said and this is what he did? So if you if you imagine that this was a passage and they weren't quite sure where to put it. And they put it after chapter 7. It really interrupts the flow of chapter 7. Chapter 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. There are scads of people around. There is an enormous crowd in the courtyard. And he goes to the last day of the feast. And he cries out in a loud voice, Anybody who is thirsty, come and drink of the waters. 
because that day you had ceremonies where they took water out of the pool of Siloam and paraded it through town and poured it out as a drink offering to God. So it was it was in a way of saying, God, you, pro you provided your people with, with water. Um, and Jesus used that and showed that he's water. <clears throat> the other ceremony that was done during the Feast of Tabernacles was the lamp lighting ceremony. There were lamps lit. And I, this is this is still the case today. It's fun when you have lanterns all hanging in the trees, and people will still do that. If you have a big party in your yard, I promise if your daughter gets married and you have it in your yard, you're going to have lanterns on every tree. <laughs> and they did this, and they had a ceremony of the, of the light, uh, the light shining, and Jesus is now, in the next passage, going to say, I'm the light of the world. So he's taking these passages from this, and this passage is put right here in the middle. Um, so where, where it's supposed to be, I don't know. Um, that it was the words of Jesus, most people believe so. Um, but I need to tell you that. Um, I need to tell you that that, that. that this is one that's disputable among the two large passages in the Bible that's disputable. This is one of them. So it's still. When I knew that I was going to preach this next, I just thought, love this. I don't know anybody who doesn't love it. This woman is sitting there knowing that they're going to throw rocks at her. She's feeling the rocks before they come. She's, she's being used. You can't imagine how much she's being used. They trapped her. Uh, they, they, they don't care about justice. They don't care about her. And she's being used. And they're really trying to trap Jesus. All of it's about Jesus. This woman is just a pawn in their little game. But it doesn't matter. She still knows that she's about to die. And she's there, and her only hope is this itinerant rabbi teacher. And the rabbi teacher, the words out of his mouth could mean her life or her death. And it's interesting that when that she doesn't really know that this man is her God, that this man is her maker, that he made her, and that she does have a judgment that awaited him. She just thought that they caught her up in the, in the act of adultery. They, who, where's the guy? That's my question. Where is he? So she, he's gone. She's going to take it all herself. And who cares if another woman gets, gets stoned in the streets? But Jesus, instead of condemning her, stands and knowing that he will be condemned for her, releases her. That, that forgiveness is based upon his own death that he knows he's going to, to do. That's why it was put in chapter Luke, it was chapter 21 of Luke. This was the last passage of Luke before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. And I think that this is a, that would be a wonderful place if, you, if it was a, a gospel account needing a home, that the Luke would have been a wonderful place to put it. But let's, let's look at it. I want to start actually in, in 53. Uh, of John, John 7, and then into, into this passage. So let's look at the first few verses. And every man went to his house. Now that's interesting, and I went ahead and I put that in here. You'd think that that would be the end of John chapter 7, which it is. John chapter 7, all of those people that were hating him and wanting his, him death, and he's at, he's at the, the festival, and everyone leaves, and they don't arrest him. And if you remember uh, two weeks ago, the, the Pharisees go to the temple garden and said, we told you to arrest him. Where is he? And they couldn't even do it. They couldn't even 
arrest him, even though that was their one job. They had one job, and they couldn't even do that one job, and Jesus leaves. And it says that, um, that every man went into his own house, but Jesus went up into the Mount of Olives. You'll see that uh, throughout Passion Week, where Jesus stays in his campsite. He doesn't have a home. All these people went to their houses, and he didn't have a house. <coughs> he went back up to, to the woods. He went up back up to the, to the Grove of Olives, wherever that he was, and he stayed there because he doesn't have any place. And that's the first thing I wrote down. First thing that this passage teaches me about Jesus is that Jesus had no home and he had no school. He had no place that was his. This is my father's world. All of this, all of this is all authority. He knew all authority was given to him and all was given to him. But this world and will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. All of this will be given to Jesus. It is his inheritance. But as a, as a man, he had nothing. And so when everybody else went home, he had nowhere to go. He went back up to his, to his squat somewhere up in the woods, just like a poor man would have. This is God of heaven and earth. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 9 says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. That Jesus Christ would have no place to lay his head. Remember, he said that. He said that. That was that was in Matthew. This is Matthew eight. Jesus said to him, "The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head." Someone said, "I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to follow you where you're going." And he goes, "He goes. I'm not sure you do. I really don't have any place to go. Um, maybe you ought to stay where you're where you're more." That's really sad. He had no place to go. He, even a bird has a nest, but he had no place to go. He had no place to keep his things. <clears throat> Everything that he owned was cast dice for when he was on the cross. Everything that he owned, everything that was his, was given to, to soldiers as their gambling prizes because he had nothing. He had no place to go. This is God who owns it all, who owns every cow on every hill. This is from Luke 7. She brought forth her firstborn son and lie and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a feeding trough. You know what a manger is? I have a barn and I have six mangers. And a six, it's basically just a feeding trough so that the cow who's, who's there is uh, docile. So they're eating so you don't mind milking them. That's what, that's what it is, a manger is. It's a feeding pan. And they didn't have a place to put the baby put him in the feeding pan because there wasn't any other place for it. It says here because there was no room for him. They didn't have room where there was not nice things. He only had the barn to live in because this is what Jesus did. When Jesus came for us, he emptied himself of his own glory so that he could come and get us. He went down to the depths to come and get us, that he might take us somewhere that we, we know we don't want to be. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be where he is. And where he is, we might also be. And as I wrote this down, I just thought, I'm not going to stop there. I'm not going to just say Jesus is humble. The first thing I learned about this in this passage is that Jesus Christ is humble. And that's true. Jesus Christ 
humbled himself even to death to be, a, be obedient to death on the cross. But I was like, I just laughed and I said, I'm going to put him in anyway. This is Matthew 24. And then he shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with Man. power and great glory. <laughs> Revelation 1. Behold, he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him yes. and also which pierced him and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. amen. This is Matthew 25. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. Amen. This is Revelation 21. I saw no temple therein, for the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of thereof, and the city has no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it. And the land is the light thereof, and the nations which are saved shall walk in the light of it, of, of it, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And in the next chapter, 22, this is the last chapter of the Bible, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street, and on either side of the river were the tree of life, and there were twelve manner of fruits, and yielded for fruit every month. And the leaves were the leaves for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. Amen. Amen. So when you see Jesus, humble Jesus, humble Jesus knew that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. He knew what was happening. He knew what will happen. He knew what will be his. And he came and broke into this world and stole us. We were trapped and we were, we were hostages and he broke in and he bound the strong man and he took his stuff. And we took his stuff. But Jesus would endanger himself and lower himself from where he was so that he could come and be our Savior. Will forever, you know my time, that he would do that for me. He will be glorified forever and always, and I will sing his praise, and you will sing his praise, and you will be happy. Because that is what it is. So the first thing that I wrote down was Jesus had no home, and he had no school. He taught, he taught these people while they used this poor woman as their bait. And he taught them because he was, it was at school. He was sitting at the temple courts early in the morning because he had no place to go. So he went there like anybody and he set up his thing and he sat down and he taught people and anybody that would walk by, he would teach. This is God of heaven and earth that should be attended. It said, and his servants shall serve him forever. But instead of being attended, he got up early in the morning from a place that didn't even have a bed and walked down early in the morning and started teaching anybody that would listen to him. And he was teaching them God's very words from God's very mouth. And people maybe didn't even know who, what they were listening to. So Jesus is humble. The second thing I wrote is Jesus is wise. <laughs> because you're going to trap Jesus, huh? You're going to trap him? You're going to trap him in these words? You're going to use this poor woman as your bait? Because you're such a holy man. You're so holy that you're going to want people to throw rocks at this lady until she dies? 
Wow, what a wonderful guy he is. <coughs> Let's see what Jesus says about him. This is verse 3. We're back in John chapter 8. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought him from a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he had not heard them. But when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You see, the, the Pharisees were the dominant religious influence in the, in the entire country. Do you think they needed to come and bring him before a rabbi? Do they need a rabbi to say, oh yeah, good idea, yeah, let's go stone him. They were the ones who, the scribes were the ones who knew where every comma in the entire law was. They knew everything, they had it all memorized, they could write it out <coughs> on a clean piece of paper from beginning to end. The Pharisees were, were, were so specific about obeying the law that they would count the leaves on the plants and take out every tenth leaf and make sure that they put that in their tie because every, it was all by the letter of the law. But what they were doing is they were being the most hypocr hypocrisy was what they were doing. They were, they were coming to Jesus to trap him so that what he would say would, they would use against him later. <coughs> now, does, what does God think of adultery? Jesus wrote this law. I need to tell you. Jesus is the one that wrote it. Jesus is the one that says, Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. You realize by saying go and sin no more, he was saying you've been sinning. But just by telling you, leave your life of sin, he's saying you have been sinning. So this is, this is not, you're not taking away from God. God is the one who has the, the standards of God. God is the one who is of righteousness of God. This is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not sleep with someone who you are not legally married to in, in the eyes of God. You're not. It is not free. It is absolutely important to God, and you will be judged for it. Don't think that you're going to get by with it because it's trendy. Just because everybody does it doesn't mean that the whole world is not going to hell and you're going with them. You shall not commit adultery. In Leviticus, it gives the death penalty for such. This is Leviticus 20. And the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, that's why I say this was all a hoax. This, this, there was no justice here. If there was justice, if they really cared about justice, first of all, they broke into someone's bedroom in the early morning of the Feast of Tabernacles, if this was in this passage. And where's the man? In the very act means that the man was there. There wouldn't have been a very act if the man wasn't there, but I don't see him. <laughs> They're using her as a, as a bait in order to trap Jesus. Because what would Jesus have said? He only had two choices, right? He would have either said one thing or he would have said the other. By the way, Deuteronomy 17 goes along with the law and says, the, the hands of the witnesses shall be the first to put him to death. And they were okay with that. They were the witnesses to this, obviously. They all knew what was going on. They all broke in. The door opens. And there's this chief priest and the Pharisee standing there in the bedroom. 
and everybody's like screaming and jumping for the sheets. <laughs> and, and there they are, standing there, the witnesses. And they would have been the first to pick up the rocks. And interesting that Jesus said, um, the witnesses should be the ones to throw the rocks, huh? No, Jesus said, no, the ones without sin should throw the rocks. Now that's interesting, we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, Jesus didn't only hold to the condemnation of all things, but he expanded it. You have to remember that last, just this past week in Bible study, we're in the middle of uh, Matthew 5. And we got right up to the beginning of this verse. We're going to cover this verse on Wednesday. Uh, but this is verse uh, 27 in chapter 5. You've heard of what said of them in old time, that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's interesting. The witnesses there are actually the first to cast stone. But Jesus has said, has said, no, the one that is not guilty of this should be the one to cast the stone. You have to be careful. When, when God has, said, has ordained that the sword belong to man, by man's blood it was shed, by man his blood will be shed. There, there is a judgment. But, and you don't have to say that a judge has to be as perfect as God in order to execute justice. We should really care. I really care that people should be off the street who are hurting people. I, I really care about this. I really care that they do catch the killer. That they, that do, I don't care what kind of a, a, a wicked person this was that's dead there on the, on, the, on the stainless steel table. But they didn't deserve to be murdered. They didn't deserve it. And they had a murderer and they should be brought to justice in this world. And that we should care about that. But these people didn't care about justice. It wasn't justice they were hearing about. So Jesus was saying, all right, if you're guilty, maybe you ought to be the one throwing the rock. Maybe the one who isn't guilty would be the one throwing the rock. Makes me wonder what they're guilty of. Because they left from oldest to the youngest because their conscience accused them. See, they were trying to trap Jesus, and this was nothing new. This is Matthew 12, verse 10. Behold, there was a man with a hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful for it to heal on the Sabbath day? That they may accuse him. Set that poor guy up with a withered hand. Couldn't even open a bottle. Couldn't hold the bottle. And they were like, Hey, watch this. We'll see what Jesus says. Because either he's going to say yes, and we'll say that, and we'll tell him that he's breaking the Sabbath, or he'll say no, and everyone will say, Well, I thought you cared about him. Well, what's your two choices? Matthew 16, Pharisees and Sadducees came tempting him the desire that they should show him a sign from heaven. Now this is Jesus who does miracles everywhere he goes. But they wanted a, a specific sign on target. Like, okay, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. Jesus wasn't going to play their game. This is Matthew 19. The Pharisees came tempting him and saying to him, Is it law for a man to put his wife away from any reason? Oh, he's divorced. That would that buy the house. Let's use divorce. Maybe that'll help. Because they're trapping you. Because it's a no-win situation. What do you say? You're either breaking God's law or you're breaking the spirit of God's law. One or the other. And so they're they've gotten either way. And they they I'm sure they've had they had like sitting around tables thinking, okay, well, what about this? What about this? What are we asking? 
How do we track her? Matthew 22. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? They were even going to use the law against him, so that he would pick and choose God's law. And Jesus is wise. You see, it's not just that Jesus is smart. Jesus knows who man is. He knows them perfectly. He knows who God is. He knows what God's intent is. And he made the man. He knows how to speak. So, if Jesus said not to stone her, do you think he'd be in trouble? Yes, because he was the very one who wrote the law of Moses saying that, that, that the man and the woman should die. Okay? If he said to stone her, then the Roman authority would have accused him of being an insurrectionist and would have put him in prison. So it was like a win-win for the Pharisees. They knew that he had nothing he could say because they didn't have the right for a capital offense in Israel. They couldn't. So Jesus also had a reputation as a friend of sinners. You have to realize Jesus is a friend of sinners. So if Jesus is the friend of sinners, why would you condemn that poor woman? Because obviously it's a, she's a baby. Because we didn't bring the man on purpose. So we could bait him. And so, so Jesus was um, like a rock and a hard place. I wrote down that there's a bigger, way, way bigger picture thing going here. Because if you were coming against God and you're saying, do you, do you kill this sinner? What would God say? Well, God who wrote the law would say yes. But see, the problem is that God has loving kindness in his heart. That he intends to show the universe. And the way he does this is by giving grace to sinners. No one would know about God. And God wants to be known. But no one would know about God unless he shows grace to sinners. But he can't show grace to sinners if he's just. If he's fair and just, he can't show grace to sinners. Because if that sinner sinned, then he has to die. And that's just the way it works. So what do you do when you go to God and you say... Why should I be saved? Why should I not be saved? How do you go to God and have God be merciful to me and still be God? If God were to be merciful to me, he could not be God. And th that is the, the big issue here. This is, this is, this is the, what we read in, in Psalm 85. Mercy and truth have kissed each other. Truth that tells me that I'm a sinner and that I should die. That is justice. It is what God is. The foundation of his throne is justice. But the first inclination of his heart is loving kindness. And the way that God showed both was that he destroyed his son. That anyone that would trust in him, that God's perfect life in Jesus Christ would be given to you. And, and Jesus is complete and total death in your place would be your place. That way, God is completely just and merciful to you. Because it says in Romans 6, Romans 3, he's the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. He's completely fair. He's completely fair to forgive you because Jesus suffered for you. He's perfectly fair. He's not in any way unjust. And he's the justifier of those who believe in him. He made you righteous even though you weren't righteous. And he is God. And he doesn't lie, even to himself. He did not say, you're just, when you're not just. He said, you are just. He justified you 
through the death of Christ. That is mind-blowing. That is un that's unfakeable. No one can come up with that. There's no one smart enough on planet Earth to come up with that. That God would send his son and allow him to live for me and die for me and then be completely faith, faithful to his righteousness and completely faithful to his loving kindness. The gospel is unlike anything else in the universe. There is nothing like it. And, and it's through Jesus Christ, mercy and truth are together. He acted like he didn't hear. Not like it. He bends down on the ground and he starts scratching on the ground in the dirt. And he acts like he didn't even hear them. They're like, well, Rabbi, what do you think? And he just, just kind of ignores them. He just kind of goes into his little zone. And they're away, they're kind of getting a little bit indignant. They're like, and your answer is. Now, the question of questions has to be what he was right. I, there's nobody that would read this that didn't say, I wonder what he was right. Because he's not speaking. He doesn't have any dialogue. He doesn't have any dialogue, but yet he's writing on the ground in front of all of them. There's that poor woman who knows, who can feel the rock slamming into her jaw. She feels it. She knows what's going to happen. All of those self-righteous Pharisees who's trapping her and tricked her, and then is bringing her and using her and abusing her, and then they're trying to get Jesus, and Jesus is writing on the ground. So I went to the commentators. And every single commentator used this verse. And I didn't know this verse. I had, to, I had to go look it up. This is Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from thee shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the law of the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Like it. To write their names in the earth because they have forsaken God. That maybe Jesus was writing their names. Now, did they think that Jesus would know all their names? Don't know. But there's Jesus. And he's just write, writing their names. There's one name. Writing their names in the dirt. Which, by the way, if they would have known their Bible, would have realized he's writing my name in the dirt. Just like the, that I'm being accused of, of, of throwing my name before God. Then, the other uh, guy that I liked said, maybe he was writing something from the law. Maybe he was writing the law on the ground and showing them their sin, because that's how you show sin to a sinner, is showing the law. So this is Exodus 23. Thou shalt not raise a false report. You shall not put thy hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You should not drag this woman here under false pretenses of justice when you really have no, uh, no care for justice. Maybe he's writing that, and they would realize that, that that's to them, and maybe that's what they were writing. I don't know. But he did get up, eventually, it said, and he said, anyone without sin should cast the first stone. If you're not guilty of this, throw the first rock. Now, can this, these are people who really, really cared, supposedly, cared about what they were doing, and are they, are they guilty of it all? Are you really going to slam a rock into a person's brains and gush, gush their blood out on, in the, on a public street when you're just as guilty as them? This is Romans chapter 2. This is Paul talking to the Jews. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever you are that judges, for wherein thou judges another, you condemn yourself. 
For you that judges another does the same things. Mm -hmm. Are you really going to say that she shouldn't commit adultery and that she's an offense before God and we need to clean our streets up from this kind of riffraff when you're just, you will stand before God alone as well? When you're faced with your eternal judgment, are you really going to be the one that throws the first rock at her? Is anybody, even the Pharisees, that callous? I don't know. So what we read today is judge not that you not be judged. It's not that you don't judge. It's don't be a, don't judge someone hypocritically when you're the very guilty as, the, as they are. Right? So instead, he goes into the end of Galatians and says, the mature among you should help each other. If there's a brother caught in a sin, the one that is the most mature in the church, you go and try to help that person. You be very, very careful because you will fall into that same sin, the same as they are. Don't think that you won't. Don't think that you won't. Don't think, that oh, I'm above adultery. I'm already in my 50s. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't think I'm above murder. I'm above stealing. Absolutely. The tiniest little bit of in inclination in your heart will jump for sin because you're a sinner. That's the way it works. You, the mature among you, knowing that you're not, you're not, uh, we know Satan's tricks, and we will go and try to restore this brother very, very carefully. You go as a group, okay? You, you don't go and end up being the adulterer along with somebody else just because you're trying to help somebody else. Absolutely not. You stay, you, you know what the devil is, is up to, and you go in groups, and you avoid any possibility that there could be anything wrong in the church. With any possibility. You don't allow it because, because we know Satan's devices. So the problem is, if you were to write the law, I harden my heart against the law. That's what sin does. It hardens my heart against the law. So Jesus lifted him up, and he saw no one but the woman. All of these people just left. They dropped the rocks one at a time, and they left. And the woman is standing there, and the only person that is with her is Jesus. And she doesn't speak. And then Jesus speaks and says, where are your accusers? Is there anybody here to accuse you? Now, you notice he didn't say not guilty. He didn't acquit her. He didn't say, oh, you're not guilty. He knew what she did. She knew he did. No, he didn't say that. He just said, I don't condemn you. Jesus came to save us. He didn't come to condemn us. This is our judge. The ones that you will stand before by yourself, by yourself, in front of holiness. That man will judge you one day. But he came to save her because he knew that in a few weeks, he would be on a cross in her place. And he is able, as God, to say, I forgive you. I forgive you based upon my passion, upon my blood, poured down my arms and poured down my belly. That's the blood that will save you. Because I am going to the cross, I can forgive you. That's the just and the justifier of those who trust Jesus. For God sent his son not into the world, we just read today, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through <coughs> So he said, no man the Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I love it. I love my Jesus. Go and sin no more. Do you realize it wasn't until that pronouncement she could do it? She couldn't do that. 
Do you think that lady was loose? Do you think that lady was in some man's bed? Of course that lady was in some man's bed. She, you can't stop being a sinner. You can't just say, well, I'm going to reform myself. I'm going to get straightened up. I'm going to get a haircut and fly right. It doesn't work that way. The only way you read your life of sin is when you look directly into your God who died for you. When, as, as he looks at you from the cross. Amen. And you know it's his sin that is your sin on his body. And he's dying in your place. Only then can he say, I, you killed me. Do you not realize that the first look of Jesus from the cross on you is, you killed me. That is That drops you to the dust. Then he says, I forgive you. Amen. When you look from that and you know it's true, you don't you can't explain it. It's unexplainable. I can't say, oh, it's very rational that Jesus would forgive me. No, he said, I forgive you. And I know for whatever reason, because the Holy Spirit is working in my heart, it's for me he's saying that. He forgave me of my sin. It was real sin, real offense. And he forgave me. Then he says, go and sin no more. I have power now. The Holy Spirit empowers me to do, based upon Jesus' passion, enables me to live for him. And I promise that a hundred times in your life, a hundred times in my life, you have been able to say, no, I love my God. My God does not like this. This is, a, this is offensive before my God. I will not do this again. That's my life in the past, and it stays in the past. And there is victory in Jesus. There is victory in Jesus. Do not think that we're simply just pitiful, 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 just fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, and then go to heaven. No, there's victory right now in your life because Jesus looked at you and said, I forgive you. Leave your sin, your sin alone. Leave your life of sin. He didn't say, oh, Brian, you didn't do it, or it's not important, or I don't care. No, he knew it was, it was so important that he died for us. And he looks at us and he says, I forgive you. It's transformative. He breaks the chains of my sin. This is Romans 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Grace allows me to be broken from my chains. Grace breaks my chains. You think of grace as, as God doesn't make you go to hell. No, grace breaks my chains. This is Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made us free from the law of sin. No condemnation. Because Jesus was condemned. We're not condemned. That lets us be free. It breaks that, that law of condemnation so that I can, I can do what he asked me to do. We, we just spent... This month in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God which brings salvation teaches me to deny ungodliness and, and seek after and live soberly, righteously, and justly in this present age. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, this is verse 8. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The transformative power of grace extends past justification. And it influences your life and influences your conduct. And this is the last one, 2 Corinthians 5. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are gone. New things are coming. 
you are new because of the grace of God saying, I forgive you. And it's his right to say, I forgive you because he died in your place. Amen. God's justice is completely satisfied. The blood that should have been my blood was Jesus' blood. And Jesus' blood covered my sin. And God is satisfied. God is satisfied. Romans 8. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's life? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ that died. If Christ has died, how in the world is God going to condemn me? He won't. I'm free. And because I'm free, I can live a beautiful life in this world. I can do something here. I can do something. And last, I'll, I'll end with this. This is Romans 6. What should, shall we say? Shall we continue in sin? The grace abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? So the miracle of miracles is that that man on the cross that looked at you and said, you killed me, and you know it's true, then looks at you and say, I forgive you. And in that moment, you both died and rose again. You died. The person that was you died. And the person that came out of the grave with Jesus is walking in newness of life. And that is why we say, thank you, God. And as I are offering you, as we offer, as we leave this place, you offer to God the life that you're living because of what he did for you. That poor woman just goes away unharmed 